Okay, there you have it. We're in Luke, <clears throat> of course. And we're in Luke chapter 20, uh, beginning with verse 9. And uh, verse 9, and this is on your scripture sheet, says this, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, Mark gives us a little more detail about that event. And although that may not be printed on your scripture sheet, the reference as to where you can find this later is on your scripture sheet. And it says this, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and this is what he adds, and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. So we read in Mark that God, according to this parable, God had not only planted a vineyard, but he equipped the vineyard with everything that was needed to be successful and productive. All they had to do was to tend their portion of the vineyard. This is important because it tells us that God did everything he needed to do in order to make those tenants prosperous. And I'm wondering if that sounds a little bit familiar to us because we have a similar account in Genesis when God created the perfect garden and handed it over to Adam to cultivate and maintain and harvest everything he needed. And there was no sin. We see here that it is not a new concept. The Jewish people were familiar with God as a giver of kingdoms. This happened throughout their existence. God called the descendants of Abraham out from the, the rest of humanity. Why? To create a kingdom. To create one of his people. God created a nation or kingdom for his people, later to be called Israel. <clears throat> and over the course of time, he gave them a powerful prophet leader by the name of Moses, who led them out of Egypt. And finally, he led them into... And gave them, God did this, the richest land in the Middle East. The land flowing with milk and honey. And then he entrusted this kingdom to them. And he gave them authority over the land. <clears throat> then he equipped them on every level to succeed. To maybe bring a couple of points to your attention as to how he equipped Israel for success after he gave them their own land. He gave them laws to help them govern the people. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them judges to enforce the law. He introduced the priestly system to help them know how to worship Him. He provided a way for their sins to be covered through the sacrificial system. So they were given all they needed to be faithful and to reap the blessings of God. God was their king, as a matter of fact, until in 1 Samuel, Israel removed God from his kingly throne over Israel and demanded a human king to take the place of God. <clears throat> and Rock, what was the name of that king? And the silence is deafening. Yeah, they're so, they're so embarrassed that I even did that to them. So we'll talk about this later tonight. Saul. Now Saul has some unique things about him. 
One was, and I'm afraid to ask Rock this, was he good looking or not? Yes or no? Yes. Was he tall? What did you say? Tall? Okay. Anything else about him? What happened when he was being coronated? He hid in the baggage. So this is the king that they demanded. Thank you, Rock. They demanded to take the place of God. And by the way, God knew that would fail. He gave them prophets to prepare them for the arrival of his son. And those prophets would die at the hands of the Jewish people. And his son was to arrive to take the place of the people who had killed them. This was God's M.O. with Israel. This is the God he established himself to be to Israel. He would give, they would receive, they would rule, they would turn from God, he would chastise them, they would repent, then God would give again and they would rule and they would turn from God. You get the idea here. So my question is, is that somewhat not true of us today? Many of us face very difficult times, maybe perhaps with our health or our family or our finances, our situation in life. Some of us may be going through a season in our lives that we just think is never going to end. And by the way, it may not. Some of us are going through a season with other people going through seasons in their life. And typically, it is during those times that if we are going to get serious with God, it might be during that time because we understand that life is not always going to be as we thought it would be. And we get into trouble and perhaps we're cornered and perhaps we're caught in doing something and we just say, God, please. And this is what some of our prayers might sound like if we're really honest. God, I know I've been a jerk. I I, I know I've been detestable. I know I've been selfish. I know I've sinned. I knew I was going to sin before I sinned. I know that it's been all about me. But this has awakened me. God, please, mercy. And if it's God's will, he'll say, mercy. And probably we'll go through it all again. My point is that those who are listening to this parable should have easily understood its message concerning the vineyard. In addition to the above, they had learned the following prophecies from the law that they should have been able to apply to this parable. Roman, I'm sorry, Psalm 88, he says, You brought a vine, Israel, meaning out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. Isaiah says this, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his, what? Vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of the stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Jesus is really just repeating this scripture that they should have learned in a way to set up this parable. But listen to the last thing he says in Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. He says, and he, I looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
See, maybe there's some things turning in the minds of some of the people that are listening to this scripture being uh, taught to them from the Old Testament. Maybe something is beginning to turn in their minds. Did he just call me a wild grape? Well, how dare he? Well, he dare all he wants. He's God. And it was true. Are we getting this set up here that Jesus is creating with this parable? He is painting a very vivid picture of Israel's past for the sake of the Israel that was present at that parable. He is confronting them with their own history and with the prophecies. Now, both accounts of this parable close the first sentence with the following. So the man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And here's the thing that they both end with. And went into another country for a long while. In other words, God changed his management style. He went from a hands-on approach of ruling over Israel to awarding them the responsibility of ruling themselves. And it did not work out well for them. And the other thing worth noting is that the owner of the vineyard never relinquished his ownership of the land. However, in his absence, he farmed out parts of the vineyard to renters who would share a portion of their harvest with the owner of the vineyard. The owner of the vineyard did not relinquish control and ownership of the land. This is relevant for us today as well. God has never relinquished His ownership of His creation, including you and me. As we await the return of Christ, who has gone off to a far country, we have been granted the opportunity and privilege of sowing the seeds of the gospel into people's lives and watering those seeds until Christ returns. So my question is, what portion of God's vineyard has He entrusted to you to nurture and harvest while He is away? Can you think of any names? Are you sowing? Are we feeding? Are we watering? Or are we just simply asleep in the vineyard? Luke continues in verse 10, says this, When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. We have the background as to why he's telling this parable. Now, here's the parable. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third this one also they wounded and cast out. So Jesus is painting a picture with this parable that is just almost impossible for the Jewish people who are listening to this to believe. It is so outrageous. Now, keeping in mind the audience to whom Christ is teaching, this is a very pointed narrative. Everyone at that time would have been outraged by this by those people in this story. They would have considered them to be nothing more than brutal thugs and thieves. These tenants. 
And yet this parable is based upon their own history. It's a history that has no shortage of God sending His prophets to warn Israel of the punishment their disobedience would bring upon them and the entire nation of Israel. And they had been rebuked in the past concerning their harsh treatment of the prophets. These scriptures would also have been familiar to the people listening to this parable. Jeremiah 7.23 But this command I gave them, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. So here's a simple question. How can I bring the blessing of God upon myself? And by the way, that's a twisted question to begin with, but that's kind of what we ask. And here it is. Do what he says. It's really simple. This is what God says. Walk in all the way that I command you. For what purpose? That it may go well with you. People who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and are not walking in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ are not doing well. People who know the Lord Jesus Christ and are not walking in the way of Jesus Christ are not doing well. It's just that our eternity is different. How many decisions do you make in a day about anything? Hundreds. Hundreds. And every one of those decisions are understood and God deals with them. Verse 24, and that says, But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels at the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. These are the scriptures that the people listening to this parable would have been familiar with as Christ is giving this parable. And he goes on to say, you shall, speak all, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. They knew these scriptures. One more, Malachi 3, 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. What a beautiful scripture in the midst of discipline. You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God could have easily said, and I'm through with you. But he says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts might be saying this to you this morning. Return to me. And I will return to you. But you see, this is part of the power of speaking in parables. Christ presented a biblical truth in a somewhat unrecognizable and extreme form only to later reveal to his audience that they are the subject of the story. So as they may have expressed outrage toward the thugs and the thieves, by the end of the parable, they go, oh, we're the thugs and the thieves. See, this is part of why Jesus wasn't popular. So however outraged they were 
with the men in the parable. Now it's turned upon them. They are the despicable ones. They are the ones who deserve judgment. Now, teaching through the parables is a very confrontational approach. If you have been awakened to truth. If you haven't been, they go over your head. That's how God designed it. If, you, if you're familiar, if you've been awakened to truth, the parables are incredibly confrontational. There is a shock wave that accompanies this type of confrontation. And because of this, it's not surprising that most people have some kind of an emotional response to the message within parables. And one response is anger. The other response is repentance. And the intent of the parables, of course, is to encourage repentance. Now, there's a very familiar story that illustrates this point about being confronted with himself within a parable and how devastating it was. And it's about King David. I'll read several verses to you. Second Samuel 12, 1 through 7. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. You know what David had done, right? He'd been walking on, on the roof of his palace. He looks over across the alley whatever that is, and he sees a, a woman bathing on the, on the roof. And he sends for her, and they have relations, and she becomes pregnant. And um, then he later has her husband killed to try to hide uh, the fact that he was the dad. This is the man that Jesus calls a man after my own heart. I can't even begin to explain that other than God chose him. So here's, here's the confrontation to David about this from Nathan. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. When David heard this, David's anger was greatly kindled against this man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. So how did David respond to this parable? How did he respond to the confrontation that he is a man that he himself condemned to death because of the horrendous things that he had done. How did he respond to this? Well, we have a record of that. Psalm 51 says this. This is what David did. He fell on his face and he said, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Ever feel that way? 
Your sin is ever before you. Against you, you only, have I sinned. And David recognized that the greatest offense was against the God who created him. Against you and you only have I sinned. And I've done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. He said, I was born into sin. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken be healed. Rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David immediately repented. He came face to face with him. And he saw... Him through the eyes of God. And his reaction was repentance. David had become blind to his sin and how far he had fallen. This happens to us all the time. It was not until Nathan confronted him with a parable that David could see his life objectively and how his, son had, how his sin had grieved God. And the fruit of his, this encounter with Nathan was a broken and contrite heart. By the way, Saul repented. I'm sorry, Saul wept before God. The king. His tears were tears of regret, not repentance. Sometimes they're hard to tell the difference. But you know. I wonder if we have become blind to our sins in the church today. I wonder if we have become accustomed to sin. I wonder if we've begun accustomed to the way the world promotes and parades and flaunts sin to the point that we are in fear of speaking truth. Wouldn't you rather uh, die speaking truth than live a lie? Jesus is confronting the Jews in the temple and the price he will pay for this is heavy. So now we're back to the courtyard. And here's the heart of the message, really. In the temple, the crowd is enthralled with this story. They are emotionally invested and they are all in. Now Jesus intensifies the narrative. In verse 13, he says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, Kill them all. No. He said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, in verse 13, the owner's response is not one of vengeance or rage. 
It's really one of persistence and patience. His question is, what else can I do to persuade these men to fulfill the responsibility they have to me? God might be saying, what must I do to us to help you understand that you need to fulfill the responsibility you have to me? Or more directly, to give to me what is justifiably mine. Who owns the vineyard? God owns the vineyard. Who owns you? God owns you. But you know what? Whether you're saved or not, God owns you. So we learn that the owner sends his son as his personal ambassador. You know what ambassadors are. They are people that are sent by a higher power that have all the authority that that person has. So he sends his son as an ambassador to the tenants, and his son possesses the same authority as his father. The owner's son is sent by the father. The son obeys and goes to the vineyard. Those, those who are in charge of their portion of the vineyard unite and throw the son from the vineyard, and then they kill him. Are we getting the picture? This response is unexpected in this parable, and it is shocking to his audience. Why? Because the owner of the vineyard had every moral, legal, and civil right to prosecute these despicable men to the fullest extent of the law. The owner could easily have taken these men and had them executed, and no one would have protested. I'm really kind of glad that God has not chosen to prosecute me to the fullest extent of His law. How blessed we are that God instead chose to send His only Son, who He deeply loves, to rescue us from our own sin through His suffering and death. Jesus continues on in verse 16, He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. You see a bit of a different take on this in Matthew 21, verse 40. Listen to this. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those servants? In Luke, Jesus is making a statement concerning the judgment of the tenants. In Matthew, it is posed as a question that he puts to his audience. What will he do to those tenants? After all, these tenants have beaten up three servants, thrown his son out of the vineyard, and killed him. So this is a response of the people that were listening to this parable when Jesus said, What will he do to those tenants? Their response was quick and appropriate. Matthew twenty-one forty-one says, They, meaning the crowd, said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out or lease out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus says, what is the man to do? He's killed his son. And the people listening to the parable says, don't just kill them, torture them. Put them to a miserable death. Let's absorb this irony. Was Christ's death miserable? Yes, it was. 
we see the full gospel being played out here. The owner's son suffering death on the cross at the hands of the tenants, us who deserve to die. The crowd, or at least part of them, is about to have a King David and Nathan the prophet moment. They are about to come face to face with themselves. They will be stripped bare of their self-deception and pride and perhaps for the first time see themselves as God sees them. The question is, how will they respond? They have condemned themselves by their response to Christ's question about the tenants in the vineyard already. They've already passed judgment on themselves. This is how they responded when they realized he was talking about them. Luke twenty sixteen. when they heard it, they said, Surely not. May this never be. They got it. Just like David. What did they just get through saying? You, that man should cast them out of the vineyard and uh, put upon them a miserable death. And Jesus looked at them and he said, surely not. In Luke 20, verse 17, he says this, but he looked directly at them. You know, and I remember being in a school a couple times and a teacher, there were just those teachers that had this absolute authority about them. Other teachers could threaten you and, and yank you by the hand and whatever, and, but there were some teachers that they just had this authority about them and you just did not want to draw their attention. I remember a number of times when our class was receiving a lecture concerning bad behavior. And as he was lecturing us, his eyes were roaming the crowd and we all felt like he was speaking right to us. Until at some point, he continued to talk to the whole class, but he was suddenly looking at me, I mean at someone, straight in the eyes. At that point, it felt like I was the only one in the room. I knew beyond a doubt that I had been found out. I knew that he knew that I knew he was talking directly to me. And there was nothing I could say that would change anything. His word was final. Case closed. The only variable that was left was what the punishment would be. I think this is what Jesus did with the Pharisees. It's probably hundreds of people listening to this parable. He has 35 acres, remember that? Maybe thousands of people listening to this parable. He's walking and he's talking. And he's giving this parable. And they all came to the conclusion at some point, oh my goodness, that's us. And then I think he looked directly at the Pharisees. 
And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that is that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Mark records it this way. But he looked directly at them and said, Have you not read this scripture? And he quotes this, And he, shall, he will become a cornerstone and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Of all the people listening, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, Have you not read the scripture? And he reads Isaiah 8, 14 through 15. Now, Jesus asking the Pharisees that they have never read Isaiah 8, 13 through 15 would be like Jesus asking us if we had never read John three sixteen. He's humiliating them. He looked right at them and says, Have you never read this? Teachers? Scribes, chief priests. And the way he asked the question would have been insulting to them and it would have been one of those duh moments. Jesus was unmistakably inserting himself into this prophecy. There's no doubt. Anyone who had read the Torah, Jesus was identifying himself as their long-awaited Messiah. And this was not lost on who? The Pharisees. It was lost on the apostles. But it was not lost on the Pharisees. They were looking into the eyes of Jesus. And by the way, someday, everybody who has ever lived will look into the eyes of Jesus. And then he continues on and passes judgment on them. Matthew 21, 43 says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. It's going to be given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And by the way, that's exactly what happened. The priestly system was destroyed, Sadducees were destroyed, the Pharisees were destroyed, and they've never recovered. Paul interprets this scripture for us in Romans 9.30. says this, What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards. And he's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about anybody that's willing to follow Him by faith. But he's looking at the Jewish people. He's saying, you've missed it. He's looking at the leadership and said, They're the, you're the reason they missed it. Well, Paul, Paul addresses this. He says, what does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. See, to the Jewish people, this is you just can't get there. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried hard, so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not, Paul asks? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead by trusting in Him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path God warned them of this in the Scriptures. 
when he said, I am placing a stone, meaning Jesus, in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall, but anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Well, what is it about the law that makes people stumble? Well, it's human nature. Striving for salvation through obeying the law makes it all about us. What we've done. What we've not done. It is about what we can do. The law is about what we have achieved. This is a man-centered gospel. So the Pharisees heard what Jesus was saying and they understood it. How do we know they understood it? Next verse, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So what was their response to the truth? We know what David's was. Repentance. Verse 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, that was their response. They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Their response should have been Psalm 118, 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Here it is, because the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They would have known that scripture. Why did they reject what they had heard? Even though they understood it. John 12, verse 42 says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. He had won them over. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. The very people who were left as stewards of the word of God to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is preventing the people from coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they had so much power, the people feared them. Folks, I agree with understanding and respecting authority. But when authority is wrong, it's wrong. It's just wrong. You don't fear the enemies of God. It's easy to. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. That happens in churches today. Power structure. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So here's the problem. Even the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why did they not want to happen? Because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We're more concerned about us than we are about God. I'm not making that claim to you. I'm just saying in general, that's what it is. And by the way, this was a tipping point for the spiritual elites. This pushed them right over the edge. Their pride and egos could not tolerate this public rebuke. Within hours, they would murder the Son of God. They'd had it. They were trying to make a decision. What is more important to us right now? God or me? 
And they came to the undefiable conclusion that they were more important to them than God was to them. How will they respond, anger or repentance? How have you responded so far when confronted by Jesus' words? What's going on in your hearts and minds? I know what's going on in mine. God let me deal with this all week. It was a privilege. It was painful, but it was a privilege. Our prayer here at the gathering, as you have responded in humility and repented, that's our prayer. If this is not the case, you will have an opportunity to do so. God is always listening, family. He's listening for your heart. He's listening for your repentance. He's listening for your humility. He's listening for your praise. He's listening for your worship. God says, if you want me to bless you, obey my commands. If you've not yet said that prayer, I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to leave a little space after certain phrases. You can do this silently if you want to, and that's fine. If you want to speak it out loud, you can. This is a prayer of salvation. Father God, I believe you are the sovereign God of all creation. I believe Jesus Christ is your one and only Son. Born of a virgin who suffered and died and rose again. I believe that it is only through receiving Him that I can stand justified before you. And Lord Jesus, I receive you now. And this can be your prayer of thanksgiving. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become my cornerstone. Amen. Blessings.